2: Day and night must for a living, and children,
3: press, who has the right as Hello everyone and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with New Radio Media, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to contact the show, we'll be a little tight today, 844-999-9249. That's 844-999-9249. Or you can always email the show at Let's Talk Torah, no apostrophes, Let's Talk Torah at gmail.com. We didn't make it up north. After last week's conversation... The weather did not uh, help us frozen pipes and winds and storms and roads. So I got to tell you, the end of the show, um, what we actually did, and it was a fantastic lesson. Uh, The kids were great about it. but That we'll save for later. But suffice it to say, the weather did not cooperate. And we did not make it up north last week, but we had a great time. As we'll talk about, my kids had to... Yell the mantra of best staycation ever. So I walk around the house, best staycation ever. Uh, But we'll talk about that later, later in the show. Hopefully, I'll have time to touch on what we did. Um, We have an international guest today, not even Canada. Today, we're going all the way to England. Actually, the next month, we're getting loaded up with people from overseas England, Israel. A couple weeks from now, we got somebody from the Netherlands that wants to come on. So all kinds of stuff happening. It'll be exciting. Today's show is going to be fantastic. This Mordechai Levi Yitzchak we'll talk to later. He'll blow you away. He'll blow you away. You'll enjoy it. And of course, with all that, we got to talk about this week's Torah portion. Um, it's We're going to talk about the Tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and and even fundraising and how they did the fundraising. All kinds of important things uh, we got to get through today. So let's get rolling. So... Moses went up to get the Torah I'm going to say two weeks ago, but in the Torah portion, two weeks ago, he goes up to get the Torah. Last week's Torah portion, we got a lot of uh, laws, I guess torts, uh, monetary stuff, damages, and now, for the next five portions, there'll be a break for the golden calf. But for the next five Torah portions, we're going to discuss building the tabernacle so let's Back up to give us some background, what is going on? Why is there a tabernacle? So, really, really, the goal was the Jewish people would camp in the desert, march off to the land of Israel, and God's presence would be among everybody, in everybody, among everybody. That was the goal, that's the ultimate goal. It almost reminds me, um, I'm big on to LinkedIn. So somebody sent out a message today. You know uh, what's what are your priorities? So I, I sent him back. Uh, we had a good conversation. When you say what are my priorities, are you talking spiritually, like what I want to gain in my life spiritually? You're talking about financially. Uh, what I want to do, my my priorities spiritually, are not going to help everybody in their day to day motivation for business. So l- let's let's take this slow. And figure out what are the priorities here, what's going on. So it's really in two weeks from now, the Torah portion talks about the golden calf. For those not familiar with the golden calf, Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The Jewish people miscalculated. They thought Moses died, wasn't coming down. So they felt they needed a conduit to talk to God, which was off limits. They weren't supposed to do that. Um, But they did anyways. And they built or they created this golden calf. Moses comes down the next day, sees the golden calf. He immediately destroys it. He crushes it. Um, Those who served the idol on purpose were executed. Those who were involved also died from a plague. We're talking 3,000 people died out of millions. So it wasn't a large number. That's the gist of the golden calf, which we'll spend much more time in a couple weeks. So what happens is, um, God says, "I can't, I can't hang out amongst the Jewish people like I wanted. We need to build a tabernacle. It will be a building, and in that building, God will rest His presence amongst the Jewish people. The tabernacle will be the central location, and the the tribes will all camp um, like an army. But there'll be twelve tribes camping." Around the camp, like like, like you would, uh, like an army would would camp. That's how they're going to travel. The Levites will be sort of a barrier, a buffer between the tribes and the tabernacle because of its holiness, and they can't do too clo- get too close. That's where we're getting into the tabernacle, and again, its purpose is for God's presence to rest amongst us. But the goal, I right, We're talking about priorities. The end goal is that each person himself becomes special becomes closer to god we've talked about this in the past uh famous uh, uh it's called Mesilas Yesharim, or the path of the just and he explains right away at the beginning that our end goal is to become closer to god that's what we're here in this world for we're going to do good deeds we're going to study torah we're going to act the way we're supposed to act we're going to behave the way we're supposed to behave we're going to sanctify god's name and that all is to bring us closer to god so again the purpose of the tabernacle is to get us all closer to God. God's presence being there allows us to become closer. As a similar point, there is a command. Again, we can't do it nowadays, but when the temple existed in Jerusalem, so you had a command to go up to Jerusalem three times a year. Happens to be on holidays. The Passover holiday, the Sukkot holiday, the Shavuot holiday. That's when... The Jewish people were supposed to go up in Mass to the temple. And what happened was you you came, you experienced the presence of God. You felt a connection. And that connection allowed you to grow spiritually as a person, as a family, as a person, what your goals were, what was important, what wasn't so important. And again, that's the purpose of the tabernacle. So in this week's Torah portion, Moses is given the the directions the uh, I guess uh, if you would be an engineer, right, so you need all your paperwork to and your drafts or whatever you call them to know how to build this and what to build. That's this week's Torah portion and really next week's Torah portion. And then in a couple about a month from now that Torah portion will be the actual collecting I'll be the actual building. As a as an aside, this collection was very different. Most successful, I talk about it a hundred times, the most successful fundraising project ever because when they had all the stuff they needed after two days, um, they shut down the fundraising apparatus. Now, nowadays, nobody shuts down a fundraising apparatus um, as a great, and, and they shouldn't, by the way. A great example, um, I know, I'm sure all of you have heard the March of Dimes. So the March of Dimes was set up originally for a certain child disease. Was it muscular dystrophy maybe? I don't remember. I don't remember the original what it was for. Maybe it was polio. I don't remember. I'm sure somebody can look it up online. Uh, What happened was they were so successful that that problem uh, was eradicated. So you have this fantastic fundraising apparatus with nothing to do. So you could shut it down or you could find another project. It happens to be they found another project. You found it? No, you didn't find. it. I have to look it up. You can look it up online. I don't remember, but with the original purpose of March of Dimes disappeared, so they went ahead and they found a new charity, a new, a new—I um, don't want to say disease, but uh, but something that had to be taken care of to help children from uh, whatever it was, and that's what they're doing now. So uh, the same idea here. Once, once the um, once all the materials were collected, they actually didn't collect money for this project. It was materials. They needed wood and gold and silver and copper and different colored wools and and animal skins and and, uh, linen and uh, precious uh, stones. Once all that was collected, so the fundraising apparatus was shut down. After two and a half days, they said, don't bring anything else. We're done collecting. So it's a fascinating idea that if you have a purpose for your fundraising and you reach your goal, so you should be done.
0: It was premature births
3: and uh, birth defects. That's what it's for now or that's what it used to be?
0: Um, I believe that's what it's for now.
3: That's what it's for now, birth defects. But it was either like polio or or Hmm. musculature. I don't remember. There was an original purpose, but thank you. See, I knew my team could find it because I can't look at stuff online and actually talk at the same time. I can barely chew gum and walk at the same time. Besides, I don't like chewing gum. But in any case, um, so that's what's happening with a tabernacle. So I wanted to discuss for a minute um, some of the materials that they needed. One of the main materials was wood. In other words, the, the walls are made of wood for this. It's going to be a movable, sort of, transportable building. So in size, to give you an idea... It's about 60 feet long, uh, about 20 feet wide, about 20 feet tall. It's not humongous. And each beam, there's going to be beams, and the beams will be connected to each other. There'll be curtains over the beams. There'll be different vessels inside the tabernacle, which we'll try to get to. But almost everything was wood. There's even the Ark of the Covenant, for example, which everyone knows is gold— it's really a wooden box with an outer thin gold box and an inner gold box, so it's covered in gold. The, uh, the table is really made of wood, covered in gold. Um, the, all, the inside altar is also wood, covered in gold. Even the outside altar is made of wooden boards and covered in capper. So wood was, the, was an important material. So here's the problem. You need beams. These beams are humongous. They're twenty feet tall. That's not the hardest part. But they're actually gonna be around between three and a half and four feet wide by another um two and a half, three feet in depth. These are you can't even move these things. These are humongous beams. So forget about how they move them. But where are you getting a beam this big? I mean I guess you could imagine that we're gonna take a lot of little pieces of wood and, and knock it all together. But it sounds like they needed to have full-fledged, humongous beams of wood. I mean, we're talking gigantic size. So the question is, where are you going to get a beam of wood this big? And where are you going to to get, like, uh, 48 of them? So interesting enough, um, when Jacob goes down to Egypt, he brings these—it's a type of cedar wood. I I don't know exactly which one. It doesn't really matter. Um, He brings these cedar trees, these saplings— down to Egypt and he plants them. And he tells his children, when you leave Egypt, you want to take these trees with you. These trees will be gigantic. You're going to cut down these trees. You're going to load them up on your animals. You're going to schlep them into the desert. I'm telling you, you will need this wood to donate to the building of the tabernacle. So make sure you take these trees with so Jacob goes down, the Jewish people leave 210 years later. There is a forest of these trees that have been planted, pre-planted, pre-planned, prepared, a lot of peas there, for the tabernacle. So I can't tell you which people took out the trees. But if you think about it, if you, ha- if you knew that the tabernacle was going to need wood, and you took care to, to be the guy who took some wood... So you're the hero. Okay, people, we need people to donate big, humongous trees. Oh, like you're traveling out into a desert. Who's taking trees out into a desert? But you get to say, okay, I got trees. I got wood. I can help you out. You need me. So that's like a fantastic donation that you you took the time to plan that you could donate something of tremendous value. So that's where the wood came from for the tabernacle. Um, okay, there's, there's all kinds of symbolisms. We'll talk about the Ark of the Covenant for, for a few minutes. Um, the, you know, every building goes by its most important room and is in that room, the most important function. And the holiest room, there's two rooms in the tabernacle. There's the Holy and the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. So readers, of the Lost Ark... You can have a feeling, but not much. Um, In that Ark will be the first set of tablets that Moses breaks and the second set of tablets that Moses does not break. And again, it's debatable. There's also a Torah scroll. Either it's next to the Ark or it's in the Ark. That's, again, debatable amongst the rabbis. And this Ark is situated in that inner chamber. And it represents Torah. It represents Torah and because the Torah is inside of it. But not only does it represent Torah, and we'll try maybe to get into some of this later, not only does it represent Torah, it represents the connection with God. The cherubs, those two childlike figures with the wings going over the ark, um, represent um, almost like God's throne, where God's resting place is. Because there's, there's two things happening here. There's, there's the Torah that I need, and there's my relationship with God that I want. And to get my relationship with God, I'm going to do it through Torah study, through following God's law, through listening to God, through studying His Torah. And that will give me the ability to connect to God. So the Ark represents either Torah or Torah scholars, people that are studying Torah. That is the most important part of the tabernacle. We move into the outside room. We're gonna have the table with what was called the showbread. It wasn't really bread. It was actually unleavened bread. It was very thick. They knew how to make unleavened bread very thick and it was shaped say like a boat or like an open box. There were 12 of these loaves on this golden table. Um, It was kept there for the week. At the end of the week, they divvied up amongst the priests and miraculously the bread stayed fresh. That table, tables are a symbol of, of wealth, symbol of power, symbol of kings or officers. So we have the ark, which symbolizes Torah scholars. That's most important. The next uh, vessel symbolizes um, the powerful, the wealthy, the kings. Um, we move over to the menorah. That's the candelabra, which also, by the way, really represents Torah study. And when we get to the front, Of the room we have the an altar which was meant, which was only for spices it was they only burned spices on the inner gold ark that represented the priests so we have torah scholars we have leaders or kings we have priests and the outside the outside altar where the sacrifices were burnt and sacrificed on that was really representative of the jewish people as a whole And here comes my music when we come back. We're learning how to Skype. We're going to be joined by Mordechai Levi Yitzchak. He has a fascinating story. You don't want to miss it. So hold through the break, and we'll be joined by Mordechai Levi Yitzchak. I'm Rabbi Tzu on New Radio Media, and we'll be right back.
1: Maple Lane Golf
3: Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our nine and dine special. 9 holes of golf and enjoy food and refreshments in the clubhouse bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com.
1: Hi, I'm Andy and I'm David. Join us for fun and adventure on our new show, Podquesters, where we fight through imaginary battles and pray to the dice gods for good rolls. Yes, it's an epic, sweeping adventure. We try to fulfill our destinies without driving the Dungeon Master crazy. I thought that was the point. Anyways, check us out here on newradiomedia.com RadioMedia.com, Fridays, Podquesters. See you there. The BG song, "Staying Alive, just might help someone you know stay alive. It's one of those beats you just can't get out of your head once it's there. And it turns out the disco song has 103 beats per minute, which happens to be the perfect number to maintain the rhythm for performing CPR. A study out of Illinois found that doctors and medical students who listened to the song while they were practicing CPR not only performed flawlessly, but they also remembered the technique five weeks later. The T's to CPR are performing the technique aggressively, that is pushing hard enough and pushing on the chest fast enough to force the blood to where it needs to go. So when it comes to proper technique, it turns out that compressing the chest to the beat of staying alive really can help the victim stay alive. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman.
3: And we're back! And now we're going to learn how to Skype. So as we're going through the process with all our fancy equipment, um, I wanted to add something till I see uh, Mordechai come up on my screen, and you'll see him up on my screen. Um, A very interesting thought that I wanted to share with you. I, I told you before, the tabernacle is a pretty small building. I mean, 60 feet by 20 feet by 20 feet. I mean, that's like a, that's like a trailer. That's like a, you know, something you might see, a, uh, not exactly, but a couple tractor trailers. I mean, it's, it's teeny. It's really not of anything of great size. So why are we making such a small building? Now, the truth is, like, God's not going to fit into any building. So it doesn't really matter on the size. But is there something to be said about a small building. So here's what I want you to think about. There's actually a a famous Talmud that that it talks about that um, is he on? Yeah, I'm on. Merdachai, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Fantastic, you sound great. I'm going to finish a thought. Oh, if you can turn on your camera then we'll hear you.
2: Let me just work out how to do that. Hang on.
3: All right. So while you're figuring out how to get on your camera, um, I am going to finish my thought. So the Talmud talks about there was a certain period of time in, in history. There you are. I see you. I know you can't see me, but I see you. We have done it. So listen to this thought, Merdach. You're going to love it. And then we're going to talk. You're laughing. I love it. So here we go. I believe it's Rabbi Yehudah bariloy. So his generation was very, very special. Um, The reason they were special, it says, because six people shared one talus. One prayer shawl was good enough for six people. Now, really, that's ridiculous. Six people cannot fit under one prayer shawl. So the Talmud explains, you're right. If I'm trying to cover myself and you're trying to cover yourself, nobody fits. But if I make room for you and you make room for me, now everybody fits. That's a level of love of caring, mm. and that makes a generation special. And I'm getting a nod. Have you ever heard this you before?
2: Need to get
3: a big nod. Okay, Murdechai. let's get rolling. Now that I have you here, you know we spoke on the phone, and I never saw your smiling face. I so appreciate your smile. Um, in any case, before we get rolling, who is Murdechai Levi Yitzchak? In 30
2: seconds. Mordechai, Mordechai I, can say, I can call myself Mordecai the Jew. I was in the guide on the 25th of
3: Elul. Okay. So who, is, yeah, you know, it's coming up to Purim time. And in the Megillah, yeah. when we read about the Purim story, um, his title, it's a fantastic title. His title is Mordecai the Jew. Is that your title? That's my title. That is your title. Okay, so you don't want to tell me who you are, so I'm gonna.
2: Oh, yeah, I, I'll tell you why. My, my my English name is
3: David Husband. Okay, I'm gonna explain to you what who you are. We're we're gonna figure it out. Here we go. So okay, so you have we're going if you don't mind, and as soon as I say something, you mind you cut me off. But we're gonna go back a little bit in history if you don't mind because there's. I don't mind Good. There's what to be, oops, I lost my mic there. There's what to be learned from the, I like the word journey, from the journey that a person takes, the journey that a person is on. And today we're going to dive into Mordechai the Jews. But I like Mordechai Levi Yitzchak personally. But we're going to dive in.
2: Please use it. Use it.
3: Yeah, I, 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 it just flows off my tongue. You know, Mordechai Levi Yitzchak. The rest of them can't pronounce it, but, I, you, know, you know, in third grade. When they come to my class, I ask them their name. If they tell me a double or triple name, I forewarn them. I say, look, I'll call you whatever you want, but I'm going to call you all your names. Uh, So some of them, you know, realize that they don't want to take 10 minutes every time I talk to them just to say out their name. But in any case, um, your background, of course, is quite fascinating. You're obviously from England. Those who are listening, you can't miss the accent. Um, Where in England are you from?
2: Originally, I'm from Birmingham,
3: which is like in the Midlands, the middle of the country. Okay, and at, at, we're going gonna to have to go through the whole childhood, but you were from a religious home.
2: Yeah, I was raised in a um, very religious, very Pentecostal, charismatic family.
3: Okay, so you, you were raised in a, again, okay, I'm not going to know all the terms, Pentecostal, and you actually became an assistant pastor. What does that mean?
2: Um, well, I would be given responsibilities for, um, leading services for um, speaking in the church or, um, for pastoral visiting. So it was quite, quite a responsibility, um, especially as I was working in the week and, um, it was entirely on a, on a voluntary basis.
3: Oh, so is that, is that, uh, I guess I don't want to say the word normal, but is that usually what happens to the assistant pastors till they move up?
2: That is usually their their lot in life. They normally they've got a secular job, and then they do um, church work, obviously on a Sunday, and during the weekday evenings.
3: Wow, amazing! Already learned to be a volunteer and help people, and uh, from there you went to Israel. Why did you go to Israel? Well, I've
2: for the last sort of fifteen, sixteen years, I've had a really strong love for Israel. And um, I think when we spoke last time, I, was, uh, I spoke about this and I was, I'd moved, I was starting to move away from Christianity towards getting a more uh, deeper, deeper interest in the, in the Jewish side of things. And I'd moved towards messianics and some friends of mine from Haifa, um, they ran a tour and they still run a tour every year. And um, they invited me to go. So I went. And um, that was my first trip to Israel in 2008.
3: So for those who are clueless like me, so you said you're moving away from Christianity more towards Judaism, but Messianic yeah. is not really Judaism, or is it?
2: Absolutely. Absolute, no, absolutely not. But I thought it was getting very, very close, but it obviously isn't. Okay. You know, they, they, uh, we started to keep, um, although we got no authority to, you know, we got no right to keep it. We started keeping, uh, keeping Shavas. We started to keep, we'd keep um, Pesach. We'd keep Sukkot. And, you know, we'd, we'd do everything because we thought it was all fulfilled in, in Um, But, you know, I had a real, real awakening. But, you know, more on that later. But that's, that's, that's the mindset of messianics.
3: Right, so, so to just clarify, messianic really means that they do want to follow the laws of the Torah, but they're still yeah. believing in Jesus. That's the bottom line that that is it in a nutshell yes that's in a nutshell, okay, so you were with the with what we'll got messianic I don't want to say movement, you were the messianic, no. but you ended up back in England, so then what happened
2: yeah i came I came back to England and I moved to uh North Wales the following year to be part of um a small fellowship that I'd met their leaders in Israel in two thousand um, and eight and I got engaged to this lady in the fellowship and it obviously was not Hashem's will that we carry on the relationship because about six weeks before the wedding, she called it off. And we were due to go to the um, Ramat Rahel in Yerushalayim and uh, I still went. And it was an emotional time, you know, because I was looking forward to having been there with my wife. Um, But it was a chance for me to be in Israel on my own. And um, really, in between the emotional times, I really enjoyed the trip.
3: But that was that was still with the messianic group or? That was
2: still that was still with the messianic group, although I went on my own, I was still attached to that still attached to that group.
3: okay, so as we're moving through the the early history um does, is this when you made your way to California, or I missing a step still?
2: No, you're not missing the step um two thousand and fourteen um I was still very interested in um, messianics. Um, I'd gone through, if I can just recap, just just please, sort of rewind please. a little bit. Um, I'd gone and moved to, I was still, still in North Wales, but I'd moved location in Wales. And I was sort of lost a little bit of interest in messianics. And um, I'd got a friendship going uh, with a lady who used to go to like the, the state church, the Church of England. And we um, eventually got married. Sadly, it didn't last all that long. And we got divorced. And I started to pick up my interest in Messianics again. And in 2014, I uh, made some friends in Fontana, in California, and we we both got this strong interest uh, in Messianics. And I f- I flew over and met the family and stayed with them for a month. Had a wonderful time. Um, I was so taken with it that I thought I was actually going to move to America, um, but Hashem had sure got other plans.
3: So out in California now, my knowledge of California is I was born there on an Air Force base and then my parents took me away. So I don't have too much memories of uh, California, but um, I'll tell you where this is going. My son actually just left England. He was in England for a wedding. So he sent oh. back. Yeah, I should have looked you up, but he was busy with his friends running to try to make the guards laugh and they got angry at him, whatever. But he took funny yeah. pictures. Um so, but the pictures were all cloudy. So I said to my son, I said, Yerezev, the pictures are all cloudy. Is it sunny? He says, well, right now in England, since it only rained one day this week, it's called good weather. I said, okay, great. So I can imagine going out to California would, uh, would be a little bit more enticing for the weather. I'm oh, not sure absolutely. that was your reason.
2: It was wonderful. I had a wonderful, wonderful time.
3: So you're with a friend, Brian.
2: That's right. Yeah. And,
3: and you get a hold of a book.
2: What? Yeah, book? this is when I, went, I because I went back um, a year later and um, Brian had actually bought this book about three months before I went out in the April of 2015. And he, um, he just couldn't get into it. So he just took it back to the, to the bookshop. And about four weeks before I went out, he just couldn't get this book out of his head. So he went back to the bookshop and it was still there. Well, you don't normally buy the same thing twice, but you did. And um, it really got a hold of him. So uh, one Shabbos he came across. And I think I said when I spoke to you, and I certainly said it to the Dianim here in London and in Manchester, um, that I don't know what I read, but it had such a profound effect on me. Do you remember what the book was? The Book of Jewish Knowledge.
3: The Book of Jewish Knowledge. So you read this book. And you are a spiritual person. Obviously, you're going from one group to another group, as we say, finding yourself. And there were things in that book that connected with you, and you don't even remember what they were.
2: I don't remember what they were, but what I do know is this. that What I read, I had absolutely no defense against what I was reading, because normally I would have been able to defend my, quote-unquote, my Christian beliefs. Um very, very profoundly, very strongly, but I had no defense. It was like Hashem just disarmed me and just poured this, this great volume of truth into me.
3: So it, as a as a pause, um most people, I don't care what religion, more religious, less religious, it doesn't matter to me. But most people, um, when somebody I don't want to say attacks, when someone comes to them with the truth, um, and it doesn't jive with what they want to believe, so they just mm-hmm. brush it off. They, they don't allow it to take over their mind because it will change their way of living. It will change who they are. Really? People don't like to people don't like change. I believe in who I am. I think I'm a good person. Most of us think we're good people. And if, uh, if, if you come at me at, with a different angle and you're making me change my core beliefs, then, then who am I? But you didn't have good. that problem no i mean i was completely completely disarmed so okay so now that you're disarmed and you're in california so what next
2: what next well brian and i looked at each other and we said like what do we do so um we contacted a friend who has since made um alia after he's finished his gear us in texas and he said, you need to contact this rabbi, this counter-missionary rabbi who works for Jews for Judaism out of Toronto in Canada. So we, uh, we messaged this rabbi, Rabbi Skobak. Quick plug there for Jews for Judaism, if you don't mind. No problem. Um, he's
3: he's <laughs> online. I looked him up. His name is Rabbi Skobak, right? S-K-O-B-A-C. And Jews for Judaism. No is yeah. that his website? Jews for Judaism. Yeah. Lots of great information yeah. on that webpage. So uh, now you got your plug. Okay, go ahead. <laughs>
2: Thank you. So we, um, we sent him a message and he responded on Motsi Shabbos. And uh, we arranged a time to speak. Uh, I think this was on the Monday, like two days after. And we just sort of thought, well, how do we fill our time between now and when we talk to him? Uh, so we, we just pulled up his YouTube channel and just started watching video after video after video, after video with more and more incredulity, incredulity, with even wider open mouths and chins near on the floor. And we thought we really believed all the stuff that's opposite to this. And like we were just, ah! Uh.
3: Well, wow, unbelievable. Now, um, people imagine that, you know, it's in the Christian religion, for example, if I want to become a Christian, I walk in and they'll baptize me and end of story. No one's waiting around. Now, just now, but in your case, you're, there's like a fire, right? Something new. You see this, you believe in it. You're going full force. So you figure, I imagine you figure, go to the rabbi, rabbi or whoever, um, I now believe in God and Judaism and I watched all these videos and I read this book. I want to be Jewish. So can we schedule my conversion for next week, Tuesday? Uh, does it work so um, easy? Yeah.
2: <laughs> it does not work like that.
3: Does not work like that. How it does, does it work? Like-
2: well, Rabbi, um, Rabbi Skobach, um he put me in touch. He gave me the details to contact the uh, the London Beth Din, And so when I got back, to um, England, I contacted the Beth Din, and we started corresponding, and they told me that I needed to move. The first thing I needed to do was to move into Orthodox community. Well, I couldn't afford to move to London because the prices of houses are just so so, um, inordinately expensive. So,
3: And I not only that, to- by the way, I know I'm interrupting you, but you're busy being a volunteer your whole life. It's not like you have some great uh, bank account from all the work you've been doing.
2: Well, may it please a shame that I have got some large accounts. Um, <laughs> Good. So, um, so I eventually moved, moved to Manchester. Um, I moved into the house that I'm in now, which is just on the, um, the edge of the area of where I live. And then you have to start attending shul and then you have to get sponsored. So I spoke to my shul rabbi and he agreed to sponsor me. And he wrote to the London Beth Dean sometime at the Pesach in 2016, and at the end of uh, at the end of May, early June, they gave me an interview at the end of June 2016.
3: Wait a second, pause for a second. I want to back up. Um, Your story started 2014. The rabbi sponsoring you in 2016. So that doesn't mean that because you're a nice person and you're a serious person, that the rabbi is sponsoring you three days later.
2: No, absolutely not. You have to sort of, I mean, I came to Manchester in 2016 and I was going to the shore for about at least three or four months um, before he would sponsor me. And I just felt it was right to ask him around Pesach time, so I asked him. And so, like, we now, from my awakening, uh, we're like, um seven, eight months on now, um, almost, almost a year, almost a year to, the, to June 2016. And so I went down to London for my interview at the Beth Din, and it was about 40 minutes, and it was a fairly intense interview. And he said, right, we'll, we'll take you on. So I didn't know whether to dance, cry, or do what, but I was just so delighted that they'd take me on as a potential candidate.
3: Right, so people have to understand, they're taking you on now, Continuing in the journey to see if you are qualified, if they should allow you to convert.
2: Yeah, because right, you know, right from the start, they they will inform you, um, and this is no secret that um, you know having been interviewed and having been taken on is no guarantee of conversion. You know, subsequent interviews are no guarantee of conversion, and it's only when you get the letter about the Miller and the Mikvah that you think right, they're going they are actually going to convert me.
3: So, from your experience, and I'll—I'll I'll tell you my thoughts if they're any different than yours. Um, do you appreciate that process?
2: Oh, so so appreciate it. Um, you can't because you can't just make the jump. You have to do. You have to do the the study. You have to put the time in. You have to put the hard work in, and the the fruit of it at the end is just so so worthwhile.
3: Well said. Excellent. Uh, I, maybe I'm coming from a different angle. Maybe it's what you mean. But when people dive into something without having a chance to really think about it, it's, a, it's just an emotional decision. But when there's a whole process, by the time you're done with the process, it's no longer just emotional. It's been clearly thought out. It's, it's understood, as we say, there's no backsees, And as once you take the plunge, you're not going back. And you had the time to think, and people allowed you to grow to say, "Is this really a good decision for Murdechai? If it's a good decision, I'll move forward. If it's a bad decision, I'll change my mind again."
2: Absolutely, because when I went for my um, when I went for my Bruce Miller on the fifth of Elul, um, they, there's a rabbi there from the Beth Din, and they uh, they ask you, "Are you sure you want to do this?" And yes, 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 of course, yes, I want to do it. And then when I was um, when I went down to the, to London, uh, twenty days later, from my mikveh, you're um, standing in the mikveh and you've got three dianim looking down on you, and they're asking you the same question: Are you sure you want to do this?
3: It's amazing. It's just just amazing. But now I must move the story along to the parts. I know when we spoke, I told you, it blew me away. So two questions. Yeah. So, yeah. so when you came out. Of the mikveh, and the mikveh is a ritual bath. For those who don't know what a mikveh is, it's a ritual bath, and part of the process to um, uh, to become Jewish, to convert, is for a man. Obviously, there's circumcision, and then there's also a ritual bath, and there's three uh, judges to uh, to make sure that everything is done properly according to Jewish law. When you came out, did you feel that you were a new, changed person? See, I get you laughing so much. That's why we had this conversation. Otherwise, I would never know what to ask you.
2: Absolutely brand spanking new. Um, I came out of the mikvah, and you'll have to tell, tell the audience what this means, but I came out of the mikvah singing, uh, I think it's Tehillim 19, Torah Hashem Tamima, and I was, I was just so overjoyed. It was beautiful.
3: Good. Excellent. That's what I wanted to hear. And now I must get to my favorite part of the story. So was it that morning your friend took you to the synagogue?
2: Yes, it was because you have to. The first mitzvah you have to do is go. You have to go and wrap to in Right. And Avan Shakris.
3: Okay, so your friend takes you to the synagogue, and and yeah. lead us through the story. What happened?
2: I just thought he was going to leave me there, saying this is this is the shul, you know, this is where you go, what you do, but no, no, it's about thirty guys in the shul studying, and he walks up to the Ahmed, and he bangs it three times, and I thought, what on earth is he doing? So anyway, he just shouted, "Gentlemen, I." Crave your attention. I want you to meet the latest member of Kalal Israel, Mordecai Levi Yitzhak Ben Abraham, and the place just erupted.
3: Amazing! And then what happened? <laughs> so you go through well, the prayers, I, and they want to they want to call you up to the Torah. What happens?
2: I didn't. I didn't get called to the Torah that morning because um,
3: it wasn't a Torah reading morning.
2: It, it was. It, it was a Wednesday. It wasn't It wasn't a day to read the Torah, so I didn't get called up. But I had two or three guys come to me, um, wishing me Mazel Tov. And asking me to give them brochas, and they were just so delighted, so delighted.
3: So when did we have the story where they carried you up? Or that was All oh, right, one? that
2: that was the following. Uh, the mikveh was on the on the Wednesday down in London, right. and I came back. So I came back on Thursday afternoon, and I went down to my shul where the rabbi sponsored me uh, in 2016, and I think I got the fourth aliyah, yeah? and I should have spotted something was up because there was a chair. Uh, like a, a stacking chair put not far from where I was sitting. And um, my rabbi called me up, and the um, the eldership just pushed me into the chair and carried me to the bima And the place just absolutely was er- erupted with shouts of joy.
3: You know, there's uh, numerous times in the Torah there's a command to love the convert. So I just got to ask uh, you, did you feel love? I tell you like I've never felt it before. Fantastic. Mordechai Levi Yitzchak, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on, going through, this, going through the, your, your journey, um, hopefully inspiring people at least to open your minds. And when yes. someone comes to you with something new, at least think about it, at least be honest about it. Before I have yeah. to let you go, would you like to leave us with something? Or did I squeeze Ooh. everything out of you already?
2: All right. Well, something, something that came to me from, um, just come to share from, I can't think which, I think it was Parashash Yitra a couple of weeks ago. Because um, I'm a big fan of the B'editra Rebbe, after which I'm named Lady Yitzchak. Right. And Hashem said to um, Moshe, go down. And he said, well, why do I need to go down? The mountain is fenced. Um, the people aren't going to break through, so Hashem said, Go down. So Moshe went down. And what the what Rabbi uh, Levi Yitzhak brings down is that very often we get elevated uh, through our Davonin, through our Tefillah, through our mitzvot and we get we can get quite judgmental about people, our fellow Jews that aren't on quite the same level of elevation as we've, we've managed to arrive at. And that's a very, very grave of error, I think. And he said, What he brings down is that we should actually go down. As Hashem said to Moshe, go down. So we should go down to where they are and lift them up and not judge them.
3: Amazing. Amazing, amazing. Merdach, I can't thank you enough. I've never, I was in England.
2: You're so welcome. I
3: have been in England, uh, because my plane stopped there. That's my knowledge of England. But one day, we are going to sit down and at least have a cup of coffee. We're going to say hello. I don't know when, how. But we're all on a journey. Thank you so oh, much for the,
2: joining us. My, my great pleasure. Kultov, Kultov. Great. Kultov. Have a
3: great Shabbos. Be well. Great Shabbos. Shabbos. Bye. Okay. Be well. So I am watching the screen. I have no idea how it disappears. There we go. That was so much fun. We Skyped. Yay. Okay. That was really, that's an amazing story. Just. A, a fascinating person, what fascinates me is because again, I run into people like this all the time that if you if you if you ask them to change, I don't care if they're religious and they have to change, uh, be more religious, uh, people that are not religious, become religious, people don't like to be accused of not being you know as perfect as they could be. And we all have our our issues. We, well, none of us are perfect. We all need to grow. I was filling out this morning, somebody was talking about uh, a certain type of, uh, of books, of authors, and they were looking for a certain type of book to be written, and what kind of books do I like to read, and what kind of books do I think my children should read. And as I'm filling out the questionnaire, and I'm trying to be honest, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I answer this question truthfully, somebody else will say, what? Jacobson reads that kind of book. How could he do that? And, uh, you know, it's it's really hard to be honest and say this is not what I should be doing. And I, I got to grow and I got to change. So that part, I, I just appreciate amazingly. Fantastic interview and so much fun on Skype. I hope you appreciated that interview. And with very few seconds left, again, we were just uh, ending off. We start out with that conversation that just... Blends in so nicely with, with love. There's loving the convert. Love means that I give. That's what love means. It doesn't mean that I like you, that I share that, that you're my friend. It means I have the ability to share, the ability to give. So with all the things going on in this world, people, anybody who's different or not the same, or different background, we need to learn to love. We need to learn to give. And here comes my music. And we actually skipped a break today. So when we come back, we're going to be joined by Jonas and Goldson of Ethical Imperatives. Hold through the break, and we'll be right back. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm
2: Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a
3: playlist curated by me just for you. It's all right here on NewRadioMedia.com. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. Yes. Bury the phone in the fat Cemetery. It's got a cord. <laughs> Welcome back to the Craig Foley Show. Our votes don't matter and i always disagree doing this show i feel like i get like a little bit of time to chit chat with the man yeah i fell in love with oh
0: hello folks welcome to the greg russell movie show writer producer director how did this whole thing come about for you
1: a new release long-term study concludes that women who work the night shift are at greater risk of developing breast cancer The report appears in the journal Occupational Environmental Medicine and shows that working more than two night shifts a week can raise the risk of breast cancer by as much as 40%. Even more troubling was the finding that women who worked at least three night shifts a week for a minimum of six years had a 50% increase in their cancer risk. The study also found that the risk was almost four times higher in women who considered themselves to be morning people. One possible reason for the increased risk is the interruption of the normal human circadian rhythm which is your body's internal clock disrupting normal sleep patterns over a period of years compromises the production of melatonin which is a hormone that has been shown to suppress cancer growth early risers who did not work any night shifts were found to have the lowest risk of developing breast cancer with another prescription for your health i'm dr jim bragman
3: And we're back and trying to reach Jonas and Goldson. Is it ringing? Not ringing yet. Okay, almost ready. Almost ready. Angel says we're almost ready. So while we're waiting for Rabbi Jonas and Goldson to get on the line, we talked a lot about the the Ark of the Covenant today, and I wanted to add something fascinating. The tabernacle was a movable building. Wherever they traveled in the desert, they had to take it apart and travel. So all the vessels had poles. In other words, the the altars had poles to carry them, and the ark has poles to carry it, and the table has poles to carry it. It shows an importance. We're not just putting it up in a box and and putting it on the back of a truck. So these things were all carried with poles. But again, the poles were just—the purpose of the poles were for, were for, for transporting only. So as soon as you parked the tabernacle where it was supposed to be, all the poles were removed. The only poles that were not removed were the poles of the Ark of the Covenant. They actually, those poles are forbidden to be removed. When I told this to my class today, a boy says, well, you, you couldn't remove them because they they were like stuck. They were like bigger on the outside. So I said they were made bigger on the outside so no one would make the mistake of removing the poles. But the law is that they can't be removed. Everything else was made that it could be removed. So the question is, what was so special about the poles of this ark that carried the Torah that the poles have to stay? So if you think about it, it's really very simple. The idea of poles is to carry or support. So the poles supported the ark. So now let's take it a step further. So we are supporting the Torah. So, what does supporting Torah mean? It means financially. Somebody wants to sit and study all day, he must be supported. If he's busy working, he can't study so much. So, it, so Torah, schools, um, scholars, they need to be supported. So, the Torah is giving us a lesson. It's true that the people supporting are busy working and the people studying are busy studying. But it's important for us to keep in mind that they shouldn't be separated. We don't say, okay, I support your Torah study, now leave me alone. It doesn't work that way. We want the supporters of Torah to be connected, attached to those who are studying Torah. It's an important connection, and that's the connection we need, and that's the connection the Torah wants to make sure exists. Not that here's my money, and then you say goodbye. It must be an ongoing connection. And since we're trying to get through the phone, we are going to move along. Kelsey, we ready with my poster. The poster is ready. And I'm sure my friend Rabbi Goldson is very busy. And so far, we are not being successful. But if we're successful, Angel will let me know. So this week's letter is the 12th letter of the of the Hebrew alphabet. It is the largest letter. And I keep doing that L sound because the letter this week is a Lamed. A Lamed, it's, it's really tall. It's a... It's, a, it's almost like a um, it will be an R and then like a tower sticking up on top. Um, in certain fonts, it's hard to recognize. I teach my students that this is the letter that's looking around. So the L sound and the Lamid helps people remember that, the, that this tallest of all letters is looking around, and that's how you remember. Its numerical value is 30, and my word of the week is LAMAD. Lamad could be to learn or to teach. And our goal, like we do here all the time on the show, my goal is to teach you, to talk about the Torah portion, to learn, either you learn from me, or hopefully to learn from the guests we had on, our fantastic guest, Mordechai Levi Yitzchak. There was so much that we all could learn and appreciate from his story. So therefore, this week's letter is Lamid. And our word of the week is LOMAD, to learn or to teach. Um, so we're going to end. Well, we'll see if we're so far we're not being successful. But I told you at the beginning of the show, um, I had a great lesson for you. And that was my best staycation ever. The children, of course, are disappointed. We're supposed to go up north, snowmobiles, hanging around in a house, playing games over the weekend, board games, going snow tubing, Even some bow and arrows, walking through the woods, all kinds of stuff that it's a little hard to do in the beautiful city of Detroit, Michigan. So, of course, they're disappointed. No no one likes to lose out on a whole trip. So, I myself had to make a major focus. And the focus was even though we're home, we're going to go on trips, we're going to do day trips, we're going to keep ourselves occupied, but we're going to have a mantra best staycation ever. And we kept saying it. And the funny thing is, is I danced around the house and I have my GoPro. So I'm videoing everything through the whole trip. And I made a 10-minute video of the trip. Everybody has to yell out, best vacation ever. So Thursday, we rented a hotel room with a pool. Kids went swimming for a couple hours. Then we had our sandwich makers or our George Foreman. And we made hot dogs. And we chilled out. "Eh, Best vacation ever. And we came home. And uh, the next day, okay, everybody sleeps late. We're not going anywhere. So we sleep late and then we we went to, it was warm. Instead of being like negative two, it was like 16. And we went sledding down a hill and together and on top of each other and rolling and running down the hill and snow angels and best vacation ever. And even over the Sabbath where the kids normally would go to their friends. So he's there. So, okay, so as my time is, we're going to go a little overtime. Tony, we go a little overtime. I'll get back to our best vacation ever. But while we're waiting, Yonason, how are you?
0: Oh, Rukh Hashem, how are
3: you? Okay, I'm glad we contacted you. The clock is ticking. Go for it.
0: Okay, well, I thought I'd do something a little different this week. Since we just celebrated the first day of the Hebrew month of Adar, which was marked by the appearance of the new moon. When the moon is new, the future is filled with opportunity, potential and for the promise of reawakening. The sun may rise and fall in the sky from summer to winter, but it remains essentially the same. The moon, however, is always in flux. She rises and sets noticeably later each day. She begins in the month as a sliver, waxes towards glory of fullness, and wanes until she disappears completely, only to return a few days later. What is the moon trying to teach us? There are five lessons. First is constancy. The moon isn't really changing. What's changing is her position relative to us and to the sun. She has no control over how we see her, yet she continues in her course. Often, the phases of our lives have less to do with objective reality and more to do with how we perceive the world or how the world perceives us. So, don't let the peaks carry you too high or the valleys plunge you too low. Whether good or bad, this too shall pass. Second lesson is honesty. The moon has no light of her own; she merely reflects the light of the sun. Because she adds nothing of herself, she projects a few. Uh, she projects a. Cure, if diminished, light into our world. Are we reflecting truth in our lives? Or are we inserting our egos in an attempt to be dazzling and eclipse others? The moon will never outshine the sun. But we often resent the sun, either for being too hot in the summer or not warming up in the winter. So the third lesson is humility. For all her self-effacement, the moon is always a welcome companion. Fourth is subtlety. In the dark, we have to watch carefully and look harder to see. The bright light of the sun makes us lazy, convincing us that we see all there is to see and washing out nuance and detail. Truth hides in the darkness, and a little light may provide greater illumination. And finally, hope. Empires rise and fall, mountains are washed to the sea, fortunes are made and lost. Every time a slender crescent of light appears over the western horizon, the renewal of the lunar cycle reminds us that there is love after loss, joy after sorrow, and success after failure passion, perseverance, patience, and prayer, we can always find the promise of light within every darkness. So the question to ask yourself is this. Are you a lunatic? Maybe you should be. It's something to think about as you have a
3: good Shabbos. Thank you, Yanis, and as always, have a great Shabbos. We'll speak to you next week. And my music is on. I'll have to teach you the lesson next week. Let's thank everybody, our wonderful sponsors, listeners. I couldn't do without you. Uh, thank you to my wonderful production team, Tony, Kelsey, Zach, Angel, Drew. I hope I've left you with some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on the radio media. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.